Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. John Tyson. Welcome, Dr. Tyson. Thank you, Lisa. Welcome to you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast with me today. Um, For those who don't know who you are, can you just give a little bit of background? Okay, sure. Um, I'm a professor of church history at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School, where I teach pretty much most of the church history courses. Uh, I've been there for about 10 years. Uh, I'm a United Methodist minister, and before I taught at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School, I taught undergraduates uh, for about 30 years. So I've been teaching um, about uh, the Christian church and her history and in our faith for quite a long time, and and also pastoring along the side. I have just recently uh, left uh, two small United Methodist churches that I was also pastoring while I was teaching. Um, Just got out of the hospital on June 26th, so I'm happy to be up and be around again, you know, after having major surgery. Awesome. Well, glad to hear everything went well with your surgery and that you had an opportunity to talk with us today. And we want to talk about your book on Athanasius. Um, as I told you off air, uh, one of the major pushbacks we get here at the Jude 3 Project is that Christianity is the white man's religion. And while we've done several episodes on just um, explaining and going doing an overview on the early church fathers that were African, uh, we haven't really delved deep into them specifically and devoting shows to those. So when I saw your book and I saw you were at uh, Dr. McMichael's uh, school, I, I thought it would be cool to bring you on and I thought it'd be cool to just talk about Athanasius and his life. Um, what was your motivate, motivation for writing this book? Well, that's a good question, Lisa, because as you know, um, nobody takes on a big job without reason, correct? Yes. <laughs> and in this in this case, I had several reasons. Uh, the one was because I've always felt that Athanasius was a pivotal person in the development of our Christian faith, uh, because he was one of the people 
who encouraged us to come to a concrete understanding of what it means to say that Jesus Christ was both God and a human being at the same time, and not to give up on either side of that, you see. Mm -hmm. And he did that under very difficult situations in which he endured political uh, persecution and social persecution uh, for standing up for that, that belief that Jesus was both God and man. And, and, and it's very difficult sometimes to hand someone a book that tells the story uh, in a succinct and readable way. I mean, Athanasius has been studied by many people down through the years, and there's been many, many good things written about him. But, but many of them are, how would you say, very high-flying. They're, they're not, if you will, an introduction, and they're not a summary. And I, and I was looking for a book that I could hand a, an undergraduate or a pastor or a divinity school student to say, you know, I think this will make sense to you if you read it, that kind of thing. And I, and I wasn't finding a book like that, so I decided to write one. And I have to say there's always a subtext to a text. And for me, um, it's very important for, for us, particularly in the West, to realize um, the role that African people played in the formation and the shaping of early Christianity at absolutely crucial time in her early history. And, and so often, uh, we particularly North Americans think that, that Christianity is kind of a urban North American thing, you know? And, and it couldn't be any further from the truth. And, and Athanasius is kind of one of the people that really makes that point emphatic uh, with the way he lived, the way he taught, the way he preached, and the way he wrote. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about the life of Athanasius. If you could summarize his life, uh, his early life, what led him to to follow Christ, and what were the major con his major contributions to early Christianity? Okay, um, you know it's we're talking about way back in the Christian past because we have to remind ourselves that Athanasius was born before the year three hundred, so he was way back there, nearly at the beginnings, not quite at the beginnings, but very close to it. And so the paper trail is not really very good. There's not journals or letters or public documents to which we can go and find out a lot about him. So most of what we know about Athanasius, either he has to tell us, or his the people who honestly often disagreed with him tell us about him. And then the third source, of course, is what we call the tradition of the church. And those are the stories that are passed down, hand to mouth, hand to mouth, and eventually written down sometime later than the original event occurred. And so what I had to do to get at the early life of Athanasius was pick up little snippets that he told us about himself, a little bit of here and there of what his opponents said about him, often in derision, and then try to check that over against what we knew from historical facts, and then also then blend in some of these stories by later writers who profess to have known him and heard these stories about him. So with that background in mind, um, it's my belief that Athanasius was born uh, at a time of very severe persecution, just before a time of very severe persecution under Emperor Diocletian, in which Diocletian decided to exterminate the Christians in North Africa. And he made it punishable to simply own the scriptures. 
And, and many Christian women and men were put in jail, were tortured, and, and some large numbers of them lost their lives, either because they would not turn in other Christians um, to be arrested and questioned, or because they would not give up their Bible portions. Uh, very few people owned a whole Bible. Those were more the property of individual churches. But many people had portions of scriptures. And, uh, and, and uh, so he grew up as a Christian, I believe, in a Christian home during a time of very severe persecution. The earliest recollection we have from anyone who knew about him goes back to when he was an early, uh, maybe a preteen. And the story goes this way. Um, the Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, who was a very important man, kind of like the Pope, if you will, of that region, uh, was looking out of his window of his house one day along the seashore there in Egypt. And he saw some children down on the beach. And, it, and something caught his attention. And so he watched them closely. And he realized they were playing church, if you can imagine. <laughs> you know, of all the things for kids to play, playing church. And and the one child, you know, maybe a, a preteen or an early teen, stood up and gave a sermon. And he could tell by the way that he was gesturing and hear some of the words and so on. Uh, and that people and the kids listened and, 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 and so on. And then he wound up baptizing all four or five of the kids that were there with him. And um, with this, the bishop looked out the window and he said, you know, I want to talk to that young man. <laughs> and so he sent one of his assistants down along the seashore there and brought Athanasius into his home uh, as a young man and talked to him and, and wanted to know, well, what do you know about Christianity? What do you know about your faith? And, and the young man knew so much about his faith and what it meant to be a member of the church and make a profession of faith and be baptized, uh, you know, even in these difficult times, um, that the bishop said, you know, those baptisms you do down there, you did down there in the seashore, I validate them. They are authentic. Those young people belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. And that's a very extraordinary thing in a church that was as liturgical as the church was at those times. Because Athanasius wasn't ordained. He hadn't been to divinity school. He hadn't been elected pastor. You know, none of those things. He was just a young man who had a heart full of faith and, and a, apparently the way he acted, a very strong call to share the gospel with others. Uh -huh. And so he he became sort of um, a foster son to the Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, whose name was Alexander, and he grew up uh, in close friendship and association with him. And as um, the, the bishop became older, I think it's fair to say that Athanasius was kind of mentoring <coughs> to be his successor, which ultimately he did. So his early time there was kind of shaped by, uh, I'm sure, a faith at his home, although we don't know anything about his parents per se, because why else would he be playing church down there along the seashore, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he had to have that in him already, some, from some parental, I think, source. And yet he was also nurtured in his faith uh, by a father figure in the church and, and by this loving church community there. 
in Alexandria, Egypt. That's awesome because I think that's it's it's funny because you know I played church growing up, so it's it's cool. Uh, but I, my father was a pastor, so that comes along with the being a pastor's kid. <laughs> so it's cool to know that Athanasius was doing the same thing. Yes, he was, and at a very early age, you know, and 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 that that deep Christian faith was already in him. And I can only assume it came from his folks, you know, his parents. Mm-hmm. Now, what ha- what happened in terms of, um, you know, what his contribution amounts to being, uh, we kind of have to back up a little bit and remind ourselves that um, Athanasius and the, and the folks there in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and other places were still in the process of working out what Christianity was going to look like. It, it wasn't a done deal if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. There had been no church councils, there'd been no creeds, there'd been no synods, there'd been no associations of major churches. It was still kind of in flux. And in that kind of period of time, um, if you let's put it this way, there were a lot of opinions about what Christianity should look like. And, and some of them were more accurate than others. And, and some of the questions that were being brought up you know, we're, we're very foundational. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe to say that Jesus was a man? What does it mean to say that Jesus was God? And if we say Jesus is God, how does he save us? And, and you know, some basic questions like this were still being talked about. They hadn't, if you will, been decided in any kind of final way. I mean, you had your scriptures, but there's a lot in the scriptures. And and not everybody is a, is a great scholar in the scriptures. And, and so one of the things that happens is uh, a person like Athanasius studies the scriptures intently so that he can feel confident in his own mind of the truthfulness of what he's telling others. And he became very convinced that the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and that means simply, as John says in the first part of his gospel, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, uh-huh. that the, the second person of the Trinity, uh, God from before all time, became a human being. Now, we, we, we could make ourselves crazy trying to explain how that happened. <laughs> but for Athanasius, that is the, the core of the whole truth about Jesus Christ, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the second person of the Trinity became a human being, and as he said, to to save us, you know, we would put it in, in our contemporary language, and he said it this way, he became what we are to make us what he is. Mm-hmm. He became what we are to make us what he is. And so there's this restorative process that he hopes will happen to all human beings, uh, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, while Athanasius is in this process of discernment and learning and growing, a very important uh, and very challenging alternative way of looking at Jesus Christ also sprang up there in Alexandria, in the very same church, if you will. And this was called, came to be called Arianism. And it had um, at its creative basis on the desire to speak about the oneness of God and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And Arius, who was a a 
a deacon, or rather a presbyter, not a bishop and not a deacon, but a presbyter, a, a local pastor in Alexandria, I came to the conclusion that Jesus' divinity was not something completely opposite from his humanity, but was a kind of purification of his humanity. And so that phrase, the word became flesh, for him didn't mean that the second person of the Trinity, who had been God from all time, became a human being. It, it meant that well, somehow Jesus, who was a human being, became more godlike. And, and this had some traction among uh, people in the early church because it brought Jesus a lot closer to us in terms of our human situation. He grew in grace. He grew in strength. He grew in power. He grew in spirituality. But Athanasius argued, yeah, but if you, if you go with the divinity of Jesus in that way, you wind up losing something that's very important, his ability to save us from our sins. And he wasn't willing to give up that very God and very man uh, understanding of Jesus Christ. However difficult it is to affirm that, because of the, the ramifications, the outcome, if you will, that he saw in the proposal that Arius and others were putting forth, namely that we have ultimately a human being who can challenge us to be like him, but cannot stand in our place uh, before God as um, a sin offering, as a covering for the sins of all people, all time, forever. And so this was a very lively debate, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And as often takes place, um, particularly in the Christian past, debates in the church also have political ramifications. And this was certainly the case with this debate. I mean, if it was an inner church argument, you know, big deal. Uh, over time, the church will come together and work it out. But what happened in the background of this was uh, a pagan, a non-Christian man um, by the name of Constantine became emperor and took over the whole Roman Empire. And in the process of his conquering the Roman Empire in the year 318, he had a vision from God, which told him that he, if he would embrace Jesus Christ as his God, he would be successful in unifying the Roman Empire. Now, we do know that his mother was a Christian, so this idea didn't come completely out of left field. It was probably in his background as well. But he made that commitment. He took that risk, if you will, and he ordered all of his troops to write, to print the name of the first two letters of Jesus' name in Greek, Tyro, on each of their shields as they marched into this hopeless battle. And they won a crushing victory. And he attributed that to their newfound faith in Christ. Well, to make a long story short, Emperor Constantine, when he became the emperor of the whole Mediterranean world, was also kind of a new Christian. And he expected Christianity and all Christians to get along with each other, that that would be kind of the glue that would hold his empire together, you know, by faith and goodwill. But he met a major problem, major interruption, when he found out that the Christians couldn't even agree as to who Jesus was. Was he God? Was he man? Was he both? 
and, and what does it mean to believe in him? And so that was a very big disappointment to him. And so he began to intervene in this debate all the way from Rome and then all the way from Constantinople. Uh, he went to, sent letters and representatives to Alexandria in Egypt and urged them to work out this disagreement. And they couldn't. Arius wouldn't agree with the bishop, and the bishop wouldn't go give in to him, and Athanasius wouldn't give in, and so they called a council at 325, and it was called the Council of Nicaea, and it was held at Nicaea in northwest Turkey. Some 310 bishops showed up, and their representatives from their church and their helpers, and they debated and they debated and they debated a number of important questions. But one of them was the question of, in what sense is Jesus God? In what sense is Jesus a human being? And it went on for days. Uh, and basically, eventually, Alexander's view, which was also Athanasius' view, that Jesus was both very God and very man, won the day. Arius would not give in. He had about four followers, other bishops who agreed with him, and they would not give in, and they were voted out of the church. And the church, in order to solidify its belief that Jesus was indeed the, the Word made flesh and come to earth to save us, wrote up a creed uh, in order to, what, solidify and explain that point of view because creeds are always kind of a manifesto of what a church believes. Mm -hmm. And if I say, we believe, or I believe, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's kind of an organized profession of faith, but it's also a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. And so that's a Nicene Creed. And that creed more or less summarizes what Athanasius and Alexander taught um, those years in Alexander, Egypt. So every time and everywhere, Christians and, and other people of faith read, study, or affirm the Nicene Creed. They're kind of agreeing with Athanasius. Now, you'd think that would be the end of it, wouldn't you? <laughs> voted out of the church, and his followers are voted out of the church, and Constantine orders Christians to quit studying those books that say, you know, those things about Jesus, and even offers to put people in prison if they do. You know? So, I mean, he puts some teeth. And you'd think that would be the end of it. That would be the easy ending. Yeah, that would be the easy ending, wouldn't it? And nothing seems to come easy for the people of God sometimes. <laughs> um, and so what happens is, about four years later, um, some of Arius's supporters tell Constantine, well, Arius has repented. He's willing to come back to the church now. And they draw up a little document that doesn't quite say that it agrees with what Athanasius and the Nicene Creed have put together, but it doesn't really disagree either. You know, it's kind of weasel words, if you will. Mm -hmm. So he signs that, and Constantine accepts him back because he's much more interested in unity because he's got this political agenda. He wants a unified Roman Empire with Christian faith as the foundation. And so he accepts Arius back, and he accepts the Arians back. And this causes all kinds of turmoil within the church, because here you have this political decision being made kind of outside of the church, 
that affects church life and church doctrine, church practice. Uh-huh. And he writes a letter to Athanasius, who was now bishop in Alexandria, and tells him, you have to receive Arius back. And Athanasius writes Constantine back, and what do you think he told him? No. I don't have to receive him back until I'm convinced he believes that Jesus is really God. And he wasn't convinced of that. And so they wrote books, and they preached sermons, and they talked back and forth. And it came to no end. And basically, um, Constantine orders Athanasius to be kicked out of his position as bishop, and he is, and he has to go to um, Western Europe, in Gaul, between France and Germany, and spends several years there. Well, one of Constantine dies in 330, 332, and one of his sons becomes an emperor, and actually three of his sons divide up the rulership, and one of them agrees with Athanasius, one of them is undecided, and one of them agrees with Arius. And so, for the next 50 years of Athanasius' life, depending on who is in charge in the empire and what their religious views are, he is either welcome to be bishop back in his church in Alexandria or not. And he is kicked out of Alexandria, uh, uh, if you were an exile and persecuted and liable to be harmed or imprisoned five separate times because he will not bend to political pressure on the question of whether Jesus is truly divine or not. That's quite an amazing record, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it tears down that theory. There's a theory that Athanasius was in cahoots with Constantine to affirm Jesus as God. But you see with how Constantine treats Athanasius after he won't accept Arian that he is not in cahoots with him. <laughs> if he was, he would have he would have bowed down. Exactly. Constantine wanted what he wanted and, and and when he didn't get it, he reacted as all a lot of people with ultimate power or people who think they have complete political power react. They they want their way, so to speak. Uh, and so he, he not only did he you know, persecute Athanasius, or, or at least make it very difficult for him, put it that way. Um, but then that was succeeded through his sons and through a series of emperors after him. And, and so there is, it is interesting to see how even way back in the past, um, political entanglements were not particularly good for the church. And yet we can't let society kind of go ahead and just do the devil's work, if you will. So we have to be involved. It's, it's a very complicated matter for a people of faith, is it not? Yeah, it is. There's uh, one nickname for uh, Athanasius that I've heard, uh, the Black Dwarf. Yes. How did he get... Yes, that was... Go ahead. How did he get that nickname? Now, some people would argue, I've seen some debates on the internet that that wasn't his nickname. Um, what... What would you say to that? That that um, that nickname was given to him by his opponent at the Council of Antioch, I believe, and it was it's recorded in the standard 
church history book written by Justo Gonzalez, uh, who happens to be a Hispanic man. Um, he dug that, that nugget of truth back out of the past and you know, kind of put it on the front pages of his textbook about 20 years ago. And so there has there is no question, um, well, what, what does it mean to say he's a black dwarf? Obviously, he's a person of color. He's a black, dark person, North African person, and he was a small man. And he has been reflected that way in art down through the years. And, and commentators really since the last 20 years have, well, they've said, well, he was probably Coptic, you know, which is kind of, I don't know, a non-risky way of saying he was black, if you know what I'm saying. Uh-huh. Um, Alexandria, Egypt was made up of many racial and ethnic groups, but the indigenous people in North Africa were Coptic and they were dark people and they were uh, intermingled and mixed with other people. And so there was really quite a, a melting pot of cultures and races and populations in Alexandria. But ever since the third century BC, Alexandria had been a Greek colony. And so there were a lot of aristocratic people in town who were more Greek than they were African, if you know what I'm saying. Uh-huh. So there was kind of layers of society. So to say that Athanasius was was Coptic is to say that he was from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, in terms of being an aristocratic leader type person in the church. And yet his ability and his skills kind of negated all that uh, because of his, his ability and his faith. Uh-huh. So what would I say to people who... Um, disagree with that. I, I guess you'd have to ask um, if he wasn't African, if he wasn't Coptic, then why did the Coptic monks come all the way out of the desert uh, several times and and give him a safe place to stay with them when he was you know under political persecution? Um, invariably, it is the Coptic people, the African people, who stood with uh, Athanasius throughout some of the difficult times and also people of the church. But, I mean, they actually physically came to Alexandria to defend him, several of them, St. Anthony of the Desert and several others, and actually invited him to come stay with them at deep peril uh, for themselves. So, I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me that his identification with the Coptic people indicates that that was his heritage. And then we also have these various pronouncements from his detractors about him being black or him being small, the kind of things that people hurl at you, at a person, <coughs> can't beat your ideas, you know, they try to beat you down with other words. Mm-hmm. And that clearly happens in from time to time. Mm-hmm. What were the other major doctrinal contributions that Athanasius made? Uh, because oftentimes we just hear about the Council of Nicaea and the deity of, of Christ. I would say that the main contribution he makes is an understanding of how what we say about Jesus Christ affects how we think about our salvation and our relationship with God. And it seems ridiculous maybe to us today to have to point out that that's an important connection to make. But it, it is Athanasius who wrote one of the best discussions, one of the best books on how what we say about Jesus affects how we understand our relationship with God and the way we live our lives. 
and that it seems to me is kind of where we all live you know i mean we all want to know well how do i live my life if i'm a person of faith and how does what i say about jesus affect the way i live my life and so it's it's not just these high-flying religious ideas that is truths that he you know hammers out and seeks out and and standardizes in, in writings and in it with this help in the Nicene Creed. But it's also this this basic understanding that that, that Jesus Christ came into the world um, as God's solution to the human dilemma, and that by embracing Christ, we are able to become like him and be transformed by our faith in his death and resurrection on our behalf. And in fact, we too not only participate in his holiness, and become more and more like him in this life because of our faith and our commitment. But we actually can hope to be raised like him and be with God in the life to come. And that's a pretty big package to pull together, um, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the end of his life like? How did he? How did he leave this earth? He died of natural causes. Uh, as a very old and worn out man, um, and yet he did not get to see the ultimate triumph of the truths for which he labored so very long. Um, he died in the late 370s, I believe, and he, his, his, if you will, the victory of his point of view was not standardized and enforced till 381. So he was kind of like Moses in a way, you know. Moses led the children of Israel all the way up to the edge of the promised land, but he wasn't able to cross over into it himself. And and that's exactly what happened to Athanasius. Uh, he died before the final victory was won, but gave the church uh, the tools, the um, the energy, and the example of what it takes to carry through. Uh, to the final resolution of what it is we believe. For you to make that connection, I think is really good because I think a lot of things we think about, we think about uh, heroes like, you know, Moses or Athanasius or Martin Luther King that didn't quite get to see the fulfillment of their, their work. Um, and think about, you know, Hebrews and, the, uh, the hallmark of faith and all those who didn't quite obtain the promise. Um, right. so, so it's it's very interesting that it, it seems to kind of work like that a lot of times. It does. You know, when I was researching that about Athanasius, I did think of Dr. King uh, as, a, as another person who was like that, who prepared the way but didn't quite enter in himself. Mm-hmm. And that's a tragedy in a way, but it also encourages us to, to carry on, you know, in their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And it's, I guess it's, it's kind of humbling too, uh, for humanity to remember that even though God uses us to do the work, he will, he will continue the work with or without us. It's a good point, isn't it? Uh-huh. That the, how the work is always bigger than any one person, isn't it? Yes. That's so true. So how can people get your book, The the Great Athanasius, an introduction to his life and work? Amazon.com is handling it. So uh, you can get it with a couple clicks and a, and a credit card. Okay. Well, are you on any social media? 
Uh, I'm on Facebook. Okay. So, folks. And uh, I wanted to mention the book is published by WIF, W-I-P-F, and Stock in Eugene, Oregon. And they would be happy to send you a copy, publisher direct. Uh, you know, if, if you call them or email them, if you don't, you know, do Amazon.com or something like that. I also know that Barnes and Noble carry it, um, but they they generally you'll have to order it. It's not a book they think they're going to sell a couple hundred copies of, you know, in each store, so they don't bring it in. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you, Dr. Tyson, for your time and your great insight. I know I learned a lot, and I know our listeners have learned a lot, too, from listening. Well, I thank you, Lisa, for inviting me to do this, and I, I really wanted to not only encourage people, obviously, to look at my book, but to look beyond that to Athanasius uh, and the Lord that he served. And Athanasius' book, uh, it's entitled, The Word Became Flesh on the Incarnation, uh, on the Incarnation, um, and it's it's out in a very readable edition that was edited by C.S. Lewis, and that's certainly a good place to learn to get to know the on the Incarnation. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching jude 3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to jude3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.